you feeling ready? I'm I'm not ready. I want to be in that chair. I don't want to be in this chair, but I'm I'll do my best. I'd be curious about how you would approach your own book. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You don't get that. No. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Cherie Newman, creator and former host of The Right Question and author of Other People's Pets, Critters, Careers, and Capitalism in Yellowstone Country. When most of her freelance income disappears during the pandemic, Cherie falls back on an old skill, pet sitting. But she soon realizes that everything has changed. The town of Bozeman, Montana, where she has lived on and off for decades, has changed. She has changed. A side hustle that used to be simple has become complicated. Cherie's debut memoir is about pet sitting, yes, and about growth in Montana, yes, but being a memoir, other people's pets is so much about Cherie. Her childhood, her side hustles, her comforts, her discomforts, the person she's become, the person she knows herself to be. Cherie Newman is an audio producer and writer. Hundreds of her podcasts and articles have been published online and in print. She lives in Bozeman, Montana. And, as I said, Cherie is the creator and former host of this very show. Cherie, it's such a privilege to say this. Welcome back to The Right Question. Thank you. It's great to be here. You said goodbye to The Right Question in the summer of 2017, right? Mm -hmm. How have you been, Cherie, and what have you been doing in the meantime or since then? I have been doing a lot of pet sitting, <laughs> but I went to California for three years and I kind of rambled around L.A. I was living in Burbank and I was taking care of my sister's house and two of her cats while she was working out of town. So I was back and forth between Bozeman, where I have family, and Burbank. And so I had lots of adventures, and I started writing when I was there, and I started working on some podcasts with some people in L.A., and then COVID came, and everything shut down. My sister came back to her house. I had nowhere to live because I didn't have a place in Bozeman, and I didn't have a place in Missoula. And so I spent a lot of time looking for a place to live, finally found one in the middle of the pandemic pandemonium in Bozeman and settled into a condo there and you know I've just been doing my freelance work but almost all of the work that I was doing with podcasting shut down because my work was based on live events and so when the live events weren't happening during COVID then I didn't have very much work so I fell back on my skills as a pet sitter and went off on a year of adventuring with that. Been doing great, but uh, had some harrowing pet sitting adventures. <laughs> Which are chronicled in part in this book, Other People's Pets. And this memoir is about a number of different careers and side hustles that you have, your adventures in pet sitting. Um, and it is that. But it's also very much about how Montana 
and more specifically, Yellowstone country, as you call it, Bozeman area, has grown exponentially uh, over the past few years during the pandemic and the effects of that growth on people who have lived there for a much longer time. Those of you who didn't move to Bozeman specifically during the pandemic, I'm wondering, was this memoir specifically, Cherie, the result of the pandemic? Or is it something that you've been ruminating on for a long time? Because you began pet sitting in the 90s, and it was the 90s or in the 90s when Bozeman started to see some new growth that just continued and continued and continued. Mm -hmm. Almost a year ago to the day that we're sitting here, um, I was at dinner with friends, and they they were asking me about these pets I was taking care of. And I started telling them stories, and they said, Cherie, you have to write this down. <laughs> and so I waited a few weeks, and I was thinking about it and thinking about it, and then I started writing, and it just, all these stories flowed out of me because it was it was very recent, easy to remember, and a lot of these stories are really funny and kind of unbelievable. I mean, I would... I would not have been able to write fiction that had these stories in it because these animals did such crazy things and the people were almost as unmanageable as the animals were. So it was just a result of friends asking me to write it down and then I decided to do it. And I gave myself 90 minutes a day for 90 days. I said, I'm going to write at least 90 minutes a day for 90 days and see what happens. And on the 83rd day, I had a book. I had written many more than 90 minutes for many of those 90 days or those 83 days. But it just, it, all the stories were there and they were fresh in my mind. So, You write in Other People's Pets that, quote, most people think caring for other people's pets is an easy way to make money. They are wrong. They are so wrong. <laughs> and this is a sentiment you repeat later on in the book as well. Why are most people wrong in believing that it would be so easy? Because you're hired to go and stay at a pet's house. So the pet knows where its food is, it knows where its bed is, it knows the door to go outside. (laughs) But the pets change when the people leave. Some pets get really anxious most pets get really anxious. And there are a few dogs, like some labs, they're just like, I don't care who's here as long as I get me something to eat. I'll just hang out with whoever. And a lot of dogs have been better socialized than other dogs. But it's just not easy for pets when their people go away. And so their behavior changes. And you kind of have to be psychic and figure out what they need. There was the one part that I wrote when I took care of a a small, what was it, a Cavalier King Charles. I had never taken care of that kind of dog before. And and after a couple of days of this horrible behavior by this seemingly nice dog, was really nice when I went over for the pet interview, but after her people left, she just, she turned into a terrible dog. And so I looked up things online and these dogs get really, really anxious and they need to be close to their people. They need to sit on laps constantly. I didn't know any of this before the people drove out of the driveway. So there's every situation is different and every 
pet, like every person, has their own personality, their own quirks, their own needs, their own preferences. So you kind of have to go in and get the lay of the land after the people are gone. The pets are always really well-behaved while the people are there, but <laughs> things change when the people leave. Sheree, one of my favorite moments or lines in this memoir comes towards the very end of it. You write, quote, what does the word soon mean to a dog? Tell me and our listeners about what prompted this question, and, and let's talk a little bit more then about this particular chapter. Well, whenever I'm with dogs, I talk to them, and I have no idea if they can understand what I'm saying. I had a black lab for 15 years, and she understood everything I said. I know she did because she would do what I told her to do or not you know, give me a look or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But other people's pets, I don't know how much they're understanding me. And so I would talk to them and I would say, you know, only three more days till your people come home. And then like the morning of, I'd say, they're going to be here pretty soon. And I started thinking about a sense of time and soon for a dog because I'm always trying to find ways to soothe them, to help them feel better that their people aren't there. Mm-hmm. Well, Cherie, you said that uh, these animals became different or they acted different around you than their people, which seems obvious. But that's to say nothing of the fact that you were moving into this new space too and being affected by these animals as well. Your stress levels went up. Your anxiety levels went up. You were on beds that weren't your, your own, you, so you weren't sleeping as well as you might have. Pet sitting was and is a strain on your physical and mental well-being. Was that something that you experienced in the 90s? Obviously, time has lapsed, so you're older at this point. But was that something that you experienced in the 90s? And so when 2022 came around, you were like, yeah, I can do that. It's going to be fine. Or was that something that you considered when when deciding to help Dana, this, um, this pet sitter that you quote-unquote subcontracted for? I did not consider any of that because I don't remember ever being that stressed. I mean, it's it's a little stressful to go live in someone else's house and sleep in a different bed. And back in the 90s, I had dogs who got sprayed by skunks. You know, I had dogs who ran away. I had things happened. But I wasn't doing it all day long, almost every day. I was doing it once in a while, three, four times a year for friends. Sure. And so this was a whole different thing. This was a business. And I felt a lot more stress because not only are you taking care of the dogs and the, the cats and whoever, you're also responsible for the property. And so there were dogs with invisible fences, and then the invisible fence failed in one case. There were dogs who needed four walks a day and other dogs who were never supposed to leave like this little patio in their house. It was all different. There were dogs who lived 30 minutes out of town on, on terrible dirt roads and it was really difficult to get back in and out of town. Dogs who had ridiculous schedules, they're, you know, they have to eat at this time or if you're late with their lunch, they misbehave. I dealt with none of that in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, because I was just doing it for friends or, you know, people that I knew well, it it was just a whole different thing. And that also allowed you to see into 
this new growth that was happening in the Bozeman area, right? You were house-sitting for these really affluent people whose houses were far bigger than they, I'm going to say it, they needed to be. How did that reconfigure your own ideas of place, right? You'd lived in Bozeman before. You were living in Bozeman, not certainly in a $3 million home. How did that change your idea of where you were living? Well, I've been in Bozeman off and on since the 70s, and so I've seen all this growth. When I was actually living in those people's houses, it gave me a sense of um, a little bit of a discombobulation because I'm not a person who wants to go out to the woods and be a hermit and be by myself. I enjoy my time alone, kind of an introvert, but... I, don't, I wouldn't want to be so far away from people. And I understand people come from a big city and they want to have space. They want to be there. But they're never there. Right. <laughs> they buy this huge place and then they're always on a plane going someplace else or they're, they're here for two weeks to have a family reunion or something. And I just started thinking about if this house wasn't here, there could be a hiking trail, you know, and a lot of people could be enjoying this forest and we wouldn't have to pay for fire suppression when the house is threatened. I mean, a lot of stuff went through my mind. It was just, it's not that I think people shouldn't have big houses. I just wondered, is this the best use of our land? Right, and you write about this idea that public and private land ownership has changed a great deal in the in the the length or in the space of the pandemic because of this very reason. Uh, you're not able to go hiking on what was once public land. It's now privately owned and and there are restrictions to public access. Cherie, before we go any further, I'd really love to hear an excerpt from other people's pets and maybe something about your side hustles, your, your careers. Um, you mentioned A River Runs Through It and these movies that really brought people to Montana. That's not your only experience uh, with movies. You moved to L.A. Uh, let's hear about that part of your your career life, your, your side hustles. Okay. Yeah, there's in, an entire chapter called Leaving Montana, and it really details all the times I tried to leave Montana and find a way to make some money somewhere. And so one of the things I did because of connections that with my sister Sally and her career in the film industry, I went to work as a cast driver. So I'll just read you one little vignette from that. Shortly after I parked a Chevy Suburban near the set, located in downtown Memphis, the door on the back passenger side opened, and a production assistant helped Courtney Love climb up onto the seat. She wore heavy makeup and a skimpy dress, her costume for the scene. She looked so thin, the word skeletal popped into my mind. She held her right hand aloft like the queen poised in mid-wave, an unlit cigarette clamped between her index and middle fingers. Can you drive her to the hotel? the PA asked. I could see the hotel, one block away. But this was my fourth job as a cast driver, so I knew how things were done in the movie business. Sure thing, I said, turning the ignition key. The PA shut the door and walked back toward the set. Through the rearview mirror, I saw Courtney looking up at me. Do you have a light? She asked, waving her cigarette. Yes, I said. I reached up behind me and flicked on the overhead light switch. 
A thin beam of white light appeared shining down on Courtney's lap from the roof of the Suburban. I checked for oncoming traffic as I steered out of the parking lot and then glanced quickly at Courtney in the rearview mirror. The muscles in her face twitched with confusion and then disgust, but she didn't ask again. I don't know why I flipped on the light, an inability to say, sorry, you can't smoke in this vehicle, to a famous person. Sideways sense of humor, but two days later when I drove Courtney again, she didn't seem to recognize me. Either that or she didn't care to acknowledge a person too daft to know the difference between an overhead light and a cigarette lighter. You're listening to a conversation with Cherie Newman, author of Other People's Pets, Critters, Careers, and Capitalism in Yellowstone Country. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Montana Book Company, located in downtown Helena since 1978, offering new books for all ages, vinyl records, and community activism. Delivery in Helena and shipping online at mtbookco.com. Sheree, this is a memoir, so obviously memory plays a big role in in the making and its aboutness. One of those memories or one of those groups of memories is how you grew up in such a large family living in such small spaces. Tell our listeners a bit about that. Well, I'm the oldest of seven children, and we were all born in quick succession. My The seventh child was born when I was nine years old. And my father went to graduate school twice while we were all being born, and he changed jobs several times while we were all being born. So we, we moved to North Dakota when I was 13. My youngest brother was four. And then we moved to Miles City, Montana, where I went to high school. So I didn't have any stability in my life till I came to Montana, and I didn't have my own bedroom until we came to Montana. We finally moved into a house where I got to have my own bedroom, which as a teenager was uh, very delightful. But it, it, I grew up in a lot of small houses. And so at one point, me and my four sisters all shared a bedroom. Usually there were only two or three of us in one bedroom, but we nine of us lived in a lot of two-bedroom houses until I was a teenager. So... Part of what I reflected on in this book is, am I uncomfortable in these huge houses, these, as I came to think of them, unnecessarily large houses? Am I uncomfortable because I wasn't used to that much space? Or, And I don't think it was that. I, I like space, but I just, I just have, I had to think a lot about were these houses necessary? You just used the word stability, and I want to come back to that word towards the end of our conversation as more of a wrap-up. But I want to talk about some of the tensions that I read in the book. The stories that you write about here, about the dogs, the the, the dogs that you introduce to your readers, really, they're not well-behaved dogs. You write about not needing to fix these dogs in the moment. You take one dog to a trainer for a free uh, consultation. You know, you're, you're, you're with these dogs for long enough that you want to make change, but then you ultimately think, these are not my dogs to change. It is not my responsibility. But also you write that 
problem solving is a huge part of pet sitting. So talk about that tension that you felt between needing to solve this temporary, albeit sometimes long-term temporary problem of a poorly behaved dog and saying, no, it's not my responsibility to do this. Yeah, that was difficult for me to say, no, it's not my responsibility because growing up as the oldest of seven children, I was responsible 24-7. And then when I became an adult, I brought that pattern into my adult life. So I've taken on a lot of responsibility in the past that wasn't mine to take on. And so it was it was kind of a watershed moment to realize after I took this dog for a consultation, realized how much work it would be for the family and how much money they'd have to spend to train that was one of two dogs in their household. I just had to say, I can't help. I can't help here because Number one, it is not my responsibility. And number two, it's impossible because even if I could provide some form of training when I was staying with the dogs, they wouldn't stay trained once their people got home. They would revert right back to their old behavior. One of the joys of reading this memoir, Cherie, is kind of coming to understand that you've thought a lot about the person that you've become. You know yourself really well. You know your behavior and you know your habits. And one of the things that comes out in this book and that you speak to explicitly are your own eating habits. I thought it was a really interesting move to talk about what you eat and how you eat alongside stories about feeding dogs. So tell me the role about those particular moments in the book about your eating habits. Yeah, as I write in the book, being one of seven children, and we were all on a budget because my dad was either in school or changing jobs. Yeah, there wasn't a huge food budget. My dad would go hunting and get us meat, and then he would grow a big garden, and we would eat those vegetables. But I took babysitting jobs so that I could look in other people's refrigerators (laughs) and their cupboards, Mm -hmm. and they always told me to help myself to food, so I did. I was just hungry all the time when I was a teenager, growing. And so I found that when I went to other people's houses to take care of these dogs, and they would say to me, oh, you know, feel free to eat whatever you find in the refrigerator or the cupboard— And they had all of this stuff that I don't eat because I have a a food problem. I only want to eat what tastes good. And so I I only— I have that problem, too. (laughs) I only keep vegetables, and I eat lots of things that aren't particularly tasty, but I eat them because they're good for me. And I've had lots of people, including a husband, laugh at me for that. But I have to do that. I have to only keep in the house what's good for me. Otherwise, I will just eat the junk. So I went to these people's houses, and they had all kinds of food in there, you know, all kinds of things that I would never eat, ice cream and, you know, I love cheese toast. And I would find a loaf of bread and a big brick of cheese, you know, and I have cheese toast <laughs> for dinner every night. So, yeah, I gained 15 pounds in one year, and I'm still trying to get rid of it. <laughs> I want to talk broadly about the book because in it, you're building up to a particular question and you ask it in different ways throughout. But I was really pleased, I guess, at the end that you really chose to lean into that question. And the question is, if I could do it all again, would I do anything differently? You write in a chapter titled Looking for Home that you would do things differently if given a second chance, that you'd like another chance at stability. There's that stability word. But I'm wondering, in your post-pet sitting life, have you found stability? I grew up with a totally 
unstable childhood. And then I perpetuated that in my adult life. It was what I knew how to do, just like taking on responsibilities that weren't mine. I knew how to pick up myself and move to a different situation. I knew how to change jobs. I knew how to start something new. I knew how to gain a new skill and go off in a completely different direction. But I've never known how to create stability for myself. And so while I was writing this book, I brought more of that into the narrative because that's kind of what I was exploring. And so now I'm finding ways to create stability in my life, even while my life is still full of instability. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's an internal thing. Hmm. I can't create stability in my life through external circumstances is what I figured out. Mm -hmm. I have to do it from inside. Well, we've sort of talked about why you continued to pet sit or why you came back to pet sitting in 2022 after leaving it behind for other careers. I'm wondering why did you finally give up critter sitting? Why what was the what was the point of no return for you at that point? The point of no return was when the two dogs ate the expensive wooden ornaments on the Christmas tree, chewed them up into bits and pulled the the lights off the Christmas tree. And then I tried to take them out for some exercise because they didn't have a fenced-in yard because they were going crazy in the house. And the Bernadoodle got all full of bull thistles. And that created a whole different drama that further destroyed the Christmas tree. And I thought, what am I doing here? Why? Why am I living through this insanity? And I just, I started saying no, and I just got in my car and I drove to the beach, <laughs> and I rode my bike on the beach, and I did a lot of thinking, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going back to this. I'm going to find a different way to make money and a different way to live my life that doesn't involve moving in and out of other people's houses and taking care of animals that really need something else in their life. They need their people. Mm -hmm. And they they need people that don't go away for a month at a time. And Yeah. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about this memoir that we haven't yet talked about? Yes. One of the themes that I explore is the idea of Montana's past. I relate it to my own experiences of living in a state with the motto, you know, it's called the treasure state. And then it has the last best place shingle hung on it. And I've had trouble finding both of those in the state that I love, being able to do the work that I enjoy doing and being well paid for it. And so those are some of the themes that I explore in the book as well, because there, there are just a lot of head scratching decisions that have been made in the last 150 years in particular. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk about your book for a lot longer, Cherie, but as I said in the beginning of our conversation, this has been such a privilege to speak with you. Congratulations on your book, and thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Lauren. I think you're doing a really great job with my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet of you to say. It's really sweet of you to say. That was Cherie Newman, author of Other People's Pets. 
Critters, Careers, and Capitalism in Yellowstone Country. Available now from Bitterroot Mountain Publishing. Look for more information about Cherie and listen to past episodes of The Right Question hosted by Cherie at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris Moyles engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio. Do you miss it? The pet sitting? Yeah. No, I do not.